I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So it's my pleasure today to welcome one of my favorite people in the world, someone I've known for several years now and always just delight in interacting with. Ed Gillespie is a keynote speaker, writer, communications specialist, serial entrepreneur, and futurist. He's the author of Only Planet, a flight-free adventure around the world. He was co-founder of Futera, one of the first sustainability communications agencies, and that played an instrumental role in making sustainability a normal consideration in business decisions and communications. I mention that because it paved the way for things like the book I recently published and the work I get to do because people seek out sustainability professionals like us in large part because of agencies like Butera and people like Ed. Ed is a seriously credible and experienced voice on things like how climate action can and must be reframed as a seismic opportunity rather than just a catastrophic threat. And he's known for his unique brand of authentic insultancy. This is a term I love. We'll talk about that. But it's about being strategically and playfully cheeky with wit and wisdom aimed at inspiring leaders and decision makers to aspire to do better. He's the co-founder of the Global Goals Accelerator. This is a long biography because Ed is quite accomplished. And the Global Goals Accelerator is a business program aimed at delivering the sustainable development goals. He's a facilitator with the Forward Institute for Responsible Leadership, a board member of Greenpeace UK, a trustee of Energy Revolution, and alongside fellow futurist Mark Stevenson is one half of the Future Knots, doing, well, not live shows lately, but hopefully back to doing live shows soon, and a podcast, which you should definitely listen to, on pragmatic optimism. He's also doing a podcast with Dougald Hine called The Great Humbling, which is about what would happen if we confronted our challenges from a position of humility. He's also just published Songs of Love in Lockdown, which came out just before Christmas in 2020, and we'll probably talk about that too. Ed is, I'm going to start that again because I just thunk the desk. Ed is a regular media contributor from the BBC to The Guardian and is a sought-after speaker, event host, lively compare, and trusted chairperson. In fact, he hosted a sustainability pub quiz for me years ago, and we've shared the stage on a few occasions. Um, I admire Ed. I like him. I trust him. And I'm generally just impressed that I get to know him. So I'm really looking forward to this chat. Welcome, Ed. It's an absolute joy and pleasure to be here. And I was feeling suitably humbled by that introduction. It's like, I am Ed. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about discomfort. I am uh, Ed, insulter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Add on things from there. But yeah, Ed, I just am always impressed that I get to know you, as I mentioned, because you're, you're impressive, but you're also just a damn nice person. So I'm looking forward to this chat because it's going to be fun. It's going to be juicy. And we always have interesting chats that flow nicely. So I think people will really enjoy this. Okay, so first question. Always the same for everybody. What's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life, that's made you who you are in the world? Well, I mean, it's very hard to pick one. Um, I, and I think I would perhaps respond to that with saying it's been a period of time for me. Mm -hmm. um, the last four years has been a sort of a, a drumbeat of discomfort. Um, I, I lost my dear dad in 2016. Uh, I lost my relationship in 2017. I had to have a long convoluted battle uh, to become a full-time single dad to my daughter. Um, I lost my business in 2018. I lost my brother in 2019. Uh, and then the pandemic hit in 2020. So I think as a period of discomfort, uh, I would say the last four years has been absolutely transformational for me. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the threads that wends its way through that um, is this idea of confronting grief and confronting loss. Uh, and obviously that's quite sharp in the personal context through all of the yeah. different um, aspects of, of losing dear loved ones um, and having challenges connecting with your own child but also the 
professional sense. Um, I think as a sort of sustainability advocate for, for 20 years, uh, I was sort of knocked for six by the IPCC report in 2018, where it just, it was this profound moment of discomfort because I, hand on heart, you know, I would have been one of those people who was always a bit more of a one more push optimism. You know, we can mm. do this people, we can do this. Uh, and I think that IPCC report just floored me. It just and made wait, me just look. to interrupt and say for listeners, the IPCC report, if people aren't sustainability yeah. nerds Sorry. like they are, it's, yeah, it's the report in which we basically found it if we don't make massive changes to CO2 levels and change basically our entire systems, we're headed for catastrophic climate change by like 2030, right? Yeah, it was, it, it was, a, it was a, a violent call to action, um, as opposed to the kind of let's, let's try and like magnetically positively allure everyone into a better future it, this was the kind of that ain't gonna work um and i i had to sit with that discomfort you know so having been the person who had beaten that drum and stood on you know hundreds of platforms delivering that message uh i had to take stock and i had to reflect and go what is the what is the reality uh, that we're actually confronting here, and are the tactics and strategies that I've been deploying adequate to the scale and the agency of the task? And I came up wanting, you know, I had yeah. this, I had almost like an existential crisis of my own, um, and I felt that I couldn't go into yet another corporate meeting just trolling out the same old lines you know yeah. that hey we just need to tweak a bit of behavioral psychology here we need to nudge people there mm. and by the way everything you're doing in your business is all fine and dandy and uh, and if you can just do a bit more miserable incrementalism hey it's all gonna yeah. work out okay and and you know I was on my knees going and I, you know and it's very hard sometimes to have these moments of acknowledgement when your whole identity personally and professionally has been built within that framework. I can uh, completely relate because I've gone through the same thing. I have a sidebar question. Yeah. And that is, I've watched a lot of people as sustainability has become mainstream and there have become a lot more mm. quote unquote sustainability consultants about, I watch with a difficulty in not judging people who are quite happy to keep taking money to keep doing that. Yeah. So how, how do we create discomfort? How do we change our own now it's become an industry sustainability is an industry people can get yeah. degrees in this and approach us all the time about how do i get into your field and so there are those who will happily and maybe well intentionally i'm sure well intentioned help companies keep doing things incrementally and it's just not good yeah. enough well so, i mean the old, the old cliche is feeds road, into, yeah the old cliche is yeah. the road to hell is paved with good yeah. intentions and it really is and I, I think you're right part of my frustration with my life in agency world was the inexorable sausage factory of having to maintain a revenue of hundreds of thousands mm. of pounds a month just to keep the show on the road which inevitably means you yeah. take briefs you're not entirely happy with uh because you've got to feed the family um, and, and I think that discomfort is a huge compromise because mm -hmm. you could argue that you have to sit with the discomfort of pragmatic reality and going, well, the client's just not quite ready for, for that raw truth. Um, and if we can embed ourselves with them, we can handhold and cajole and, and push them in a different direction. Um, but I think to be honest, that's a bit delusional. And I think mm -hmm. I also believe that after 20 years, I've got enough experience to say that that hasn't worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the agency model is feeding this. I, this is why I struggle to work for agencies. Yeah. Because you, you have to essentially just play geisha to a client. And I no longer take those briefs. I won't do anything like you if, if I don't get to go be myself and speak the truth. And yeah. if they yeah. don't want that, I'm not in. You have to be you have to be relatively supine. That's the problem. Um, mm. You know, people go, well, creativity is not neutral. You, you know, I mean, creativity is a bit of a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you have to get paid, right? Especially when you have to get paid. And yeah. so, I mean, it's loaded language, but we do sort of whore ourselves out. Um, and when you're trying, when you find yourself just buffing another um, already a highly polished piece of excreta, 
um, <laughs> then you, you have to ask yourself the difficult questions. Go, what am I changing here? And, and actually, I think for me, the real fundamental epiphany was perhaps the appreciation that not only was I not instigating the radical change that I knew in my heart and gut was so desperately needed, but actually I was involved in slowing the process of change by the defense of the status quo, by effectively burnishing the reputations of businesses which didn't deserve it. And always there's going to be this chicken and egg, you know, while I go, if if we can make them famous for doing something good publicly, then maybe that will generate a greater cycle of, of momentum and change internally. And the slippery slope of goodness. Yeah, <laughs> and that sort of flywheel argument, again, I don't think stands up to scrutiny. You know, there are so many businesses which have just got to either radically transform or as uh, my old buddy Vinnie Gupta uh, says, you know, some of them are going to have to die. Others are going to have to kill. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Because, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you know, and, and one of the best thinkers I've heard on this uh, in recent months is a wonderful woman called Vanessa Andriotti who talks about this sort of, tightrope and she she describes it as hospicing modernity which i just think is such a kind of uh, and she's a kind of deep south american indigenous thinker um as well as a kind of very profound academic um and and she she describes this wonderful tightrope which is the best sort of visual metaphor i've heard because she says on the one hand you have this sort of um projected hope which is the hey Techno optimism, we're all going to get there. I just, you know, that one more push stuff that I was describing. Uh, and that's the sort of messianic uh, revolutionary promise, you know, that uh, it, at its darkest inclination, that's the sort of Trump manifestation. It's like, you know, I will help you navigate this era of American carnage. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, on the other side of the canyon, you know, you've got this projected hopelessness which is the fatalism, the resignation, like the misanthropic, I hate people, you know, we're all fucked, we deserve to be fucked kind of thing. Uh, and yes. both of those yeah. are projections, you know, they're not the reality in which we have to operate. Uh, mm. and, I, and I get very frustrated with that false binary. And then in the middle, balancing on this teetering tightrope um, is where the true activist lies. And the yeah. true activist has to use the humour, the humility uh, and that sort of hyper self-reflectivity is the word that um, Vanessa uses, which is exactly what you're exploring in this discomfort. So it's standing, balancing on that tightrope in the discomfort, being able to laugh about it, but also getting over some of your arrogant hubris that you have all the answers and, and, to, and, to, and to sit with that humble, grounded position, which is what we talk about in The Great Humbling. It's like, to humble is to bring back down to hummus, to earth. It is to be on our knees and to look at the world that we've created around us and to celebrate all the good things, but also to acknowledge the, the kind of dystopian underbelly. And, and the way I've yeah. described a lot of this is the apocalypse. You know, this is the apocalypse, but not in the Armageddon end of the world sense, but in the drawing back of the veil, the revelation yes. of like, Oh my God! Who did this pipe work underneath? Yeah. You know, oh, I love that. I this love is that. like an in, this is some insane wiring and plumbing we have under here, <laughs> uh, and that discomfort, you know, is is totally encapsulated in the last 10, 12 months of the pandemic, yeah. because it's the raw truth about climate and carbon emissions that we can all stay at home and they only come down marginally. You know that we have these terrible inequalities both around you know economics around gender around race we have uh this this ecological you know collapse going on around us that we're still sort of blithely blasé about and all of that is the exposure of the pipework it's the yeah. raw uncomfortable truth that so much of this sort of panglossian type of like you know i'm an i'm a committed optimist is like it's ignoring it's it's bypassing the it's bypassing yeah we talked about that a little bit before we started recording because i i come at it and i use this sort of jungian psychology shadow side woo woo we need to be more earthy thing but i love that way of putting it because it is just you know sort of good for um 
the the non-woo-woo people who might be listening. It's like the pipe work is what it is. Stop going yeah. back to pretending everything's okay. We seriously need to fix this stuff. And it's great that now we know about it. Well, I'm also the question I ask is at what point does optimism become insulting? You know, if you're an mm -hmm. Australian or a Californian whose home has just been burnt down in a climate exacerbated fire season, or if you're a Bangladeshi who's just been flooded out of their home again, you know, at what point does that optimism start to be actually deeply insulting to those people who are losing their lives and losing their livelihoods and losing their families and losing their homes? Because it's, it's going to get bumpy. And I think optimism in that sense is a false flag. You can have the hope. You can have that grounded hope in the kind of the hopeful triumph of the collective collaborative human spirit and ingenuity to navigate out of it. But mm. don't talk to me about optimism because it's going to get dark. Yeah. And to think that, well, the good it's like the good vibes only cult, which is just sheer bypassing mm. because it's sort of I, I've gotten more deeply Hmm. rooted in my meditation practice is probably just the best way to put it. And it's given me this beautiful perspective, just without even trying, that things just are what they are. There really isn't sort of better or worse. It's just they are what they are. And I have this groundedness through my practice. And people have that in various ways of being really grounded in reality and being really grounded in yourself and in your values, I guess. And it's a great place to stand because kind of whatever happens in the external world is still fodder. It's yeah. it's ingredients to make something from. Exactly. You do what you can. I mean, this is the other thing that used to frustrate me in agency world was this idea that if we didn't exist, then the planet was lost. You know, <sighs> our, our work, our work was so critical and so game changing. Uh, and it, and it drives this engine of, you know, inexorable hours, you know, and yeah. working really hard because you're almost beating yourself up because you're saying, well, if I don't do this extra shift, then, you know, then climate change is not going to be, is not going yeah. to be addressed, you know? Yeah. And, and at the same time, it's like, it's, this is not a binary battle. You don't win or lose a battle against climate change. You can't yeah. negotiate with climate change. You have to get right into it. And the same way you can't negotiate with the COVID-19 virus. Yeah. And I think this is the other discomfort. You know, it's like, I, I, I've described this as three comfortable myths that we tell ourselves. One, that we know what's going on, you know. Oh, it's, mm. uh, 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 and we know. And secondly, that we, we think we'll be able to be in control of it. And thirdly, that we have the right leadership in place, which will help us navigate <laughs> the uncertain <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, and I just say, that's just nonsense. You know, yeah. and you take something like the Australian fires was the example I've been using. But, you know, it's some, some quite simple, linear, predictable trends, which was, you know, increased drought, decreased rainfall, increased wind, you know, cuts to uh, austerity, fire and forestry services. And they combine through tipping points to deliver these, you know, exponential, non-linear, quite terrifying outcomes where you get a, an area the size of Austria that burns. Yeah. Um, and so actually the uncomfortable truths speaking to your discomfort theme are that we have no idea what's going on you know mm. we have a, a climate system and a planetary system with so many terrifying potential feedback loops that we have a very kind of meager scientific understanding of secondly we are not in control and yeah. it's like and, and it's fundamentally wrong to believe that we are and thirdly the leadership that's required cannot be the one that is in service to the financial world and the economic yeah. one. And, and time and again, we see the grassroots, whether it's people rescuing each other in the Australian fires or, or people pulling together in disaster scenarios in, in Bangladesh or sub-Saharan Africa and the Mozambique floods, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's, it's, and or even the mutual aid groups in, in terms of COVID. It's like, this is the wellspring. This is where actually the great, thinking and innovation and and humanity tends to come yeah. from uh and there's such a sort of poverty of articulation of what it means to be one people on one planet because none of us are safe until all of us are safe and you can yeah. apply that to you know human rights you can apply that to the, the the gender and civil rights battles you can apply that to climate change you can apply that to covid you know it's like there is such a wake-up call 
for uh, a movement beyond that individualism, that mindfulness agenda, that yeah. sort of neoliberal uh, isolationist type of approach, yeah. which we've seen in both Trump and Brexit. It's like going, you know, cast off the bow lines. We're sailing Britain off into the mid-Atlantic. It's like, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get highly politicised on the on the Brexit one, but you know, it's it's not based in reality. It's based in a set of beliefs and truths that people have formed for themselves, which is why, you know, communications professionals have a huge responsibility uh, and arguably accountability in this space, yep. because we need to move hearts and minds in ways that they've never been moved before. Uh, mm. And that is to, to discover that what is actually a quite a kind of, you know, cliched sort of um down at home type of wisdom when you actually start to begin to describe it it's like we're all one people uh, and and the world is teaching us that unless we really wake up to that fact then things are going to get screwy I think we have a book to co-author here, Ed, because one of the <laughs> themes. So I got this great advice when I was writing my book and I was at that stage where I was just fed up with it. And somebody who I, I, inc I included some of the material, but gave me great advice about write, write this book and weave in whatever it is you want to write the next book about. So the theme that I wove in for this book to communicators was be human in your work. Mm -hmm. Don't leave your gut instinct at home. Remember that we're connected. Remember that you're strategically important and you have a role to play as a gatekeeper, as someone wise, as somebody who has a greater role to play than just taking the brief, delivering the brief and being the person who creates greenwash or purpose wash or lies. Let's just call them what yeah. they are. But this idea of reality being we are connected. We exist in an ecosystem as humans, as the planet. And that's beautiful. And once you start to really understand that and live like that there's such beautiful connection and it's hard sometimes because it means other people's pain is also your own sometimes exactly and i think there's there's something else which always comes up for me in this as well because again there's in the sort of techno utopian you know circular economy closed futurist yeah, yeah yeah like you know don't worry we're, we're fixing all of these things Technology will save us. Yeah, and the and the uh, you know my mate Mark Stevenson always says you know technology is not an answer; it's a question, and mm. you have to deeply look at the question that is asking you, because the position I've sort of come to take on it is like, actually, we could turn all of our businesses into you know net zero carbon circular economy closed loop type of entities, but if in particular that consumer world they're still predicated on the exploitation of insecurity and people's individual personal pain. That's still pretty morally dubious. You know, it's like, hey, don't worry, we have no impact now, except for the fact we're still exploiting the vulnerability of people's psyches on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good point, because you're just like, usually the piece that's missing for me is we've cleaned up our act environmentally, but we're still not paying people a fair wage, but we'll do that by 2030. But actually, there's an even bigger piece to it, which is like, we are exploiting people mentally to keep them buying our stuff. And that's yeah. not sustainable either. And that's also oh, really dubious. It is. It is. I mean, as I say, and I think that's the bit that people miss. It's like going, you know, we're going we're gonna to dematerialize the economy, but we'll, it'll still be based on exploitation. And it's like... Yeah, because that's sustainable. Yeah. yeah. Well, you talked, uh, oh, uh, going back to what you said about working in agency and this sort of, I call it the moral high ground, because I got it working in agency, working in NGOs, where people are like, throwing themselves into the abyss because it's they're martyring themselves because they believe that they have to so it is just like being at war and throwing bodies at things but that is so unsustainable personally because it's it fails to treat yourself like a human who has finite energy who needs rest who needs relationships and that's been something that's really it's it seems that that has caught on for a lot of people and 2020 has been a bit of a gift on that because people have had to be still yeah. And they've learned the power of resting and the creative mm. abilities it gives them, right? I mean, what have you found 2020's done for you in terms of just making you have to slow down or, oh, or be well, still? You could talk about your book, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, 2020, and I hesitate to say this, given some of the things we've been saying about the kind of apocalyptic exposure of so much which is wrong. Um, but 2020 was actually a weirdly good year for me. Um I used to, as a kind of 
you know, keynote public speaker, you know, I used to have to travel a lot, um, going to gigs all over the place. Um, you know, and I've been doing gigs in Barcelona where we've hung out. Yeah. Um, and you know, I would usually go by train. Um, but I know time, I, I was I going to point that out. <laughs> but I don't miss the travel. Um, what I found was exactly that point. A lot of my gigs moved online. I mean, they disappeared Im- immediately, and then a few yeah. came back, and you know, been ticking over doing them via zoom and incidentally i used to do that you know not blowing my trumpet and being a pioneer but uh, historically for at least 15 years i have often pushed back on gigs which would require me to fly out for a 20 minute talk and what i would say to the client is like i'll make you a film give me the money for the airfare you know give me the money for the hotel bill i'll go make you a beautiful well edited 20 minute film you can show at your event and i'll dial in via video conference for a live q and a for you, and, for and, you. and making taking a principal position and saying mm-hmm. it's bonkers you know one of the most recent ones was for like the norwegian transport association and i was like going i'm not flying out to talk <laughs> about sustainability at a transport gig um wow but, <laughs> so, so the immediate slowing down and the presence I mean, for me, it was about Mm. presence. I've lived in this same flat in Brixton, in South London for 20 years. And I love my flat. But there was a revelation for me, just because we were confined to quarters, because we spent 60 days uh, at least in lockdown, I was always at home, as we all were. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed was just the nature around my flat. That, you know, I'd lived there for two decades. And I've been aware, but... But being in the building all day, every day, you know, I got to know all the Corvids, the pair of Jays, mm. the magpies, the crows. The, I was hand feeding the pigeons off my balcony. Um, you know, the blackbird that sang every day. And because the traffic noise had gone, I live right yeah. on Brixton Hill, so it was a very busy road. I Former Brixton out here. What? Yep, <laughs> yeah, great I can hear the parakeets that roosted in the trees on the other side of Brixton Hill. Oh. I had I was sat in the flat with windows on both sides open, and all I could hear was birdsong. And, you know, <sighs> it was a beautiful experience. Uh, and during all of this, as you just alluded to, you know, I, I wrote a lot of poetry. I found uh, one of my ritual practices was borrowed from the American um, poet William Stafford uh, and actually a practice I picked up studying under Dr. Martin Shaw at the West Country School of Myth, which which again was a transformative um, experience for me over the last couple of years. Uh, And every morning I would get up, make my coffee, I'd read a poem. Uh, and then I'd write a poem, a, literally a five-minute poem. And it was a way of channeling what you just touched on. It was a way of channeling the heart and gut in a way that the, you know, the rational, logical brain perhaps hadn't fully kicked in to filter out everything. Uh, and it was very soulful. Um, and I, so I wrote, I did this, and I wrote something like 60 poems um, over the course of those first couple of months. And that's where, that's where Songs of Love in Lockdown came from, because I showed them to a few people, and people went, oh, those are beautiful. Mm. Um, and, and one of the things I think, again, playing to your discomfort theme is poetry has an ability to tap in to the essence of something without all the kind of highfalutin, you know, corporate polish that we will try to put on something as we, as we worry about the multiple articulations of, of, of something. Um, and I'm often drawn back to a quote by the American another American poet, William Carlos Williams, who said, it's difficult to get the news from poems, yet men Mm. die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Uh, And there's there's an incisiveness and an intervention which is economic uh, through poetry, which I've found, I've found it personally very cathartic. um, Mm. And Songs of Love and Lockdown has been very well received because people say it's like an archive of all of the things that we instantly forget through our adaptability and resilience, like all the all the learnings that are, you know, front and center of something like the pandemic, which are completely shoved to one side by the notions of getting back to normal or building back better. Um, normal drives know, me crazy. And my fear, I guess, my fear, my discomfort now is that we will learn very little um, yeah. from this experience as the vaccine rolls out as we enter what might be a roaring 20s of people desperate to get back to to shopping and travel. I mean, 
if you flip that, what what could be the beautiful thing that comes out of this, which is by no means certain, is that we appreciate that what we really value and that what we really love and are grateful for is human connection, connection with nature, uh, the ability to see our friends and family, the mm -hmm. ability to go out and explore the world, maybe, maybe very locally, uh, but also what really sustains community. And I think, so what could come out of this is a, is, is a, is a rediscovery of those very simple things. Yeah, I would add to that list the gift of stillness and time with yeah, yourself. Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, and people are really uncomfortable with that. I mean, oh, I, often, yeah. I often quote Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, who said, you know, most of humanity's problems come from our inability to sit quietly alone in a room with ourselves. Absolutely. I love that quote because it's, well, it's kind of at the heart of this whole concept yeah. of a podcast. It yeah. Does. I mean, you know, and COVID is essentially saying to humanity, now go back to your room and think really carefully <laughs> about what you've done. You know, Absolutely. Which, which any parent has said to their child at some point. <laughs> but that was us being told, and we're still at yeah. it. You know, we're still yeah. at it. You know, the vaccine is not a panacea. Um, you know, and this is why the kind of anti-mask brigade and, and people absolutely drive me insane yeah. because you can argue about the pros and cons of some of these things, but this is about collective vulnerability. Mm. And yeah, you might well be asymptomatic and immune uh, by a strange quote, genetic quirk of fate uh, and be able to march around and have no problems here. But if the elderly, sick, vulnerable and weak are dropping like flies. What does that say about your behaviour? Yeah. And your yeah. attitude to other people and our and our collective safety. And I think that's that's the bit that really sort of sticks in the craw. Um, huh. Yeah. This brings I mean, us interestingly into parenting, because <clears throat> uh, I know that you are a single parent who has been locked in with a small child for several yeah. months. And the mirror of parenting, the discomfort of having kind of a mini me yeah. just being like oh my gosh that's oh my gosh that's me yeah talk about the discomfort of parenting and what you've learned yeah. about yourself oh uh, so i mean to cut a long story short so my daughter came to live with me uh full-time during lockdown so in mid-may last year um and she was just under three at the time um mm. And we'd obviously had quite a difficult journey uh, as a former sort of family unit, um, which I won't go into detail here. But suffice to say, you know, it was this amazing gift that mm. suddenly after nearly two years of, of legal battles, my daughter basically arrived on my doorstep. Uh, and the social worker said, you know, here you are, be a dad. Um, <laughs> and it was just it was this extraordinary, I mean, I can't actually remember what my life was like beforehand now, you know, mm. and I sort of alluded to it, but, I, you know, I was a bit of a gadfly, man about town, you know, always traveling, always on platforms, always out socializing. And then, you know, lockdown had already curtailed uh, and, and demolished most of that. And then I had this extraordinary, uh, beautiful, relentless joy of 24-7 parenting, where you couldn't really go out much. So yeah. the first two months, it was like an amazing reconnection but what you're touching on in terms of the discomfort as you say it's the mirroring it's like when you don't see other people and when you're with this you know little hungry learning machine um whose brain is emerging and evolving in such fantastically rapid ways you know this sort of exponential acquisition of vocabulary um this kind of you know the building blocks of her world were being constructed um mm. and it was pretty much me and her so i mean apart from the phrasing i mean it was just joyous moments i mean like i, I walked into the bathroom one day to find my daughter sort of singing away to herself cleaning the toilet with my toothbrush <laughs> And I, and, I, and I laughed and then I was like, Claire Faye, how long have you been doing that for? It's like, have you been doing that every day? And then I've been, <laughs> and then I've been cleaning my teeth. It's my morning ritual, Dad. Go yeah, away. It's a morning ritual. You know, and it's, it's just, you know, she, uh, she was looking for something the other day and I asked her where she thought it was. And she just turned around and she goes, it's a mystery, Daddy. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it, 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 it's just joy after joy. Uh, oh. And it's not easy. I mean, and I, I totally empathise. I mean, again, I'm quite lucky because nurseries have stayed open. 
Mm. Um, I mean, make of that what you will. I don't know why small people are any less transmitters of COVID than primary or secondary school kids. But it's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. <laughs> um, and so I made a vow. You know, I basically prioritized her above everything else, which I think was totally the right thing to do. Well, and so, when I emailed you to invite you to mention this podcast and invite you a few months back, your out of office just brought me joy because it was something along the lines of I'm taking time off. I'm taking a parent sabbatical to focus on my daughter. Yeah. And so I mean, and I was lucky because I could afford to do that. Um, and I just I only restarted my work like in in the evenings after she had gone to bed um and now she goes to work uh, she goes to work, goes to work. <laughs> sending her off to scrub the toilets with a toothbrush yeah she's up the chimneys as we speak um <laughs> no she's she goes to nursery three days a week so that is my work time and i've and i've been really quite rigid on that because a i, w- I was denied the sort of mm. parental engagement for so long and so it's making up for lost time but also i just want I want her to, I mean, she won't remember most of this. That's the other sobering thing as a parent. You know, you appreciate, you try to think back to your own earliest memories and you realise how much love and care and attention is poured into you that you have no conscious, conscious Mm. recollection of. Yeah, it's wired in there, Ed. It's It's wired wired, in there. No, exactly. And that's, you know, and that's what you're trying to do. Just go, I just want her to feel loved and held and that she was on this creative journey. I mean, she's, she is a, obsessive storyteller which you know I apple can't, doesn't fall far from the tree no and i can't i can't claim credit for that i mean if you believe in epigenetics maybe there's something yeah. uh something there but even before she was pre-verbal you know she was telling stories with her fingers and with all the intonation and cadence mm-hmm. uh and lilting emotional um journey yeah. within the story but without any words and now she can use the words i mean it almost every night when I'm trying to get her out of the bath she's like I haven't finished my story daddy <laughs> oh so, I can't wait okay. to see what she grows up to be oh storyteller I mean, yeah she's a born storyteller a performer I mean yeah wow. give her give her give her an audience uh and she wants to put on a wig um uh, and tell a story Oh or, wow! Or, or play some arcane game of which I think even she is aware that the rules are, are completely emergent and liable to change at, at any moment. <laughs> I say this is a brilliant preparation for the uncertainty of life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. She's a child who's growing up during the age of COVID. It'll be interesting to see what um, babies born around here. You know, they've seen their family for the first year of their life or whatever. I have a goddaughter like that, and she's just sort of unconconcerned with the outside world because she's never met it so well, no and and that's the other thing I mean I've been really really on the ball of just making sure that uh she gets her outdoor time and her nature time and we've been, mm. we've been lucky enough to be able to go back to Norfolk where I'm from you know spend time with grandma who lives in the middle of the country so you know nature has been her playground when the playgrounds weren't open yeah. um which again I think my own formative experiences growing up in the 70s we're very much about that that freedom you know oh, again yeah. it's a slight cliche but my, you know my brothers and I would would go off in the morning and my mum knew we'd come back when we were hungry but you know it's amazing it's amazing and you start to wonder how how that parental shift has happened across the generations because mm-hmm. my mum never knew where we were yeah mine either it was so safe and brilliant yeah. and free and I don't think the world has changed I don't think the world is full of more danger now than it was then I just think our attitude to it has shifted. But, you know, if, if if you parented a child in the way that we were parented today, you'd, you'd be charged with willful neglect, probably. Much uh, easier parenting, I have to say. But And, and also, I realise what I'm about to say comes from a position of assumed privilege, because I know there are a lot of people who have had a very difficult lockdown. But Yeah, well, exactly. It makes you wonder, though, about <laughs> how this period in history will emerge as having influenced kids who got to spend time with both parents for the first time and got to have their dad around potentially more because, you know, gender roles still dominate the work world and also got to spend more time in nature because they couldn't go to playgrounds or they couldn't go to school. And I, I optimistically hope, well, I actually just wonder what influence that will have on this idea of connection that mm-hmm. so many people have lost touch with because yeah. we have technology and jobs and we live in cities and we live far from the ground, you know, in these flats, a few stories up. And we've just kind of lost contact with 
connection. Yeah, I mean, it is it is tough, as you said. You know, if you're in a small flat with two kids on the twentieth floor, then your experience of lockdown is very different to if you're mm. in a house where you've got a, a home office and a garden, and mm. you and you can play and expand. And I I do think that kind of that brutal inequality has been totally highlighted by this. And the fact wow. that I read, I read, I read a piece of data the other week, which said, you know, the upper echelon of uh, middle-class households in the UK actually banked about a hundred billion pounds worth of savings yeah. in the first six months of the pandemic, because their costs went down. Not you know, buying whilst, a sandwich whilst, or commuting. Whilst, or, yeah, yeah. Whilst other people are in, you know, reliant on food banks. So it is, it is incredibly difficult, but I think at its most basic level, again, there are, there are things that could have happened here. I mean, and maybe it is something as simple as, as eating dinner together every night. Yeah. Um, you know, having a meal together that those, those little building blocks of conviviality and connection. Mm. Um, and again, you know, the dark side of it is the, the, the tensions and the horrific, kind of epidemic of domestic violence and things that have yeah. also happened in you know in the more in the more difficult and challenging circumstances because when you're trying to manage on nothing I mean yeah. the tensions of that must flood out but yeah. this this always brings us back I think to you know the a degree of collectivism I mean again one of the frustrations mm. I think the the discomfort of the pandemic has not led to a wider appreciation that you know, we perhaps could have gone for something approaching universal basic income as <sighs> as as an opportunity, uh, because what the furlough scheme was essentially did was consolidate inequality. So, you know, if you were a successful consultant earning 45 grand a year, well, you got compensated for 45 grand a year. Whereas if you were a key worker struggling on, you know, 15 grand uh, or 20 grand, like basic living wage, then you got compensated at that. And it's it's yeah. like even those very simple errors are going to have big ramifications as we go forward. Yeah, which, okay, I think I'm going to temper a question that I was going to ask about what is there to be hopeful about and say, in light of what we've talked about, about realizing the plumbing is fucked, um, what is there to be hopeful about with that dose of, what is it, dark optimism, you call it? yeah. Dark guarded optimism. Dark guarded optimism. Yeah. I mean, if if I look at my own sources of hope, um, I do believe we could be on the cusp of a much greater relocalization, mm. and I mean that sort of socially and economically and potentially even environmentally. I mean, it's it's the whole thing about you know anyone who's been involved in sustainability for a long time, you know. Think global, act local. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, these are tired truths because they're truths. Yeah. Um, and I think if you take something like the commute, I don't think the commute is coming back. I don't make predictions. I try and stretch the imagination of the possible as a futurist, mm. um, which is a very different thing. I'm not trying to extrapolate existing trends. I'm trying to create moments uh, of creativity and, and vision that say mm. actually that's where we could be so you know the, the commute was a, a classic example of unquestionable uh insanity <laughs> 20 yep. million people moving around huge loss of time stress you know exchanging coughs and colds or throughout the winter season on the tube you know uncomfortable unpleasant um pointless actually yeah. um yeah. and nothing would have challenged that except a pandemic you know we already had all the home working tools we already had all the video conferencing platforms we had all of that so the pandemic has sharply kind of intervened in that madness mm. and it will come back there's no, make no doubts about it. it will come back in some way shape or form but i yeah. have i'm pretty sure it will not come back at the level at which it was previously we're talking about commuting, not the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, well, but the pandemic probably comes. Yeah, both uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people are probably going to the office maybe one or two days a week, maybe yeah. half time. So that already you've you've half the number of people um, who might be embarking on that because of all the things we talked about. People enjoying more time with the family, realizing they get can have a shorter working day. You know, not going through the incredible waste of time, stress, yeah. money, uh, and that has massive. Uh, ecological implications in terms of air quality 
and people mm -hmm. want them to drive everywhere. Although the, what, interesting, that's gone up at the moment. Uh, I think there's a big thing about taking back road space, about relocalization of cities. Paris mm. has done some incredible things off the back of the pandemic yep. with the 15 minute city and trying to create these sort of much more local hubs. And I think that would then lead to a, a greater degree of people spending money locally and perhaps favoring smaller shops when we're able to reopen those again. So I think, you know, it's those type of things that give you hope because mm. we have to reimagine the, the high street anyway. Uh, because of the way so much of stuff has shifted online. We have to reimagine how we connect locally. And when people spend more time, a bit like me with my Brixton bird life, you become yeah. much more interested uh, yeah. in what you might be able to influence and, and connect with in the immediate vicinity of your, of your home. Uh, well, okay, I'm going to interject because that also is a very, okay, I'm going to say it, urbanite. Asia. Yeah. Wealthy Western perspective, because, yeah. you know, like how how will this impact more widely? Because even though we're uncomfortable about supply chain exploitation, which basically just means you buy a shirt for cheaply and it means someone in a place like Bangladesh is living on a dollar a day and can't educate their children or work their way out of poverty. How might that shift in lifestyle that seems like such a gift and a pleasure for people like us negatively or positively impact people in places that aren't like where we live. And it might even just be more rural areas where they don't have local shops, or it might be sub-Saharan Africa, but I'm pushing, I'm, I'm, I'm trying yeah, I, to push the edge of the discomfort here because oh, I'm really interested in thinking that through. And I think, I mean, partly it's about understanding what resilience really means and conviviality really mm -hmm. means. And there's a reason why, mm -hmm. you know, many other countries haven't had, you know, quite the same um, horrendous death tolls um, and, and impacts economically that we've had on COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they still have a degree of that of that localization. And I think, so part of the hope might be to, to keep and maintain that. Um, one of the other things is, you know, we're, we are very obsessed with measuring the quality of life only through financial resources, mm. um, which I think, doesn't value some of the conviviality that can come from a relatively sustainable, if modest, rural life. And I often, I often think back to one of my own, you know, instrumental experiences when I was a volunteer teacher in Jamaica in the in the early nineties, and I spent a year living in in rural Jamaica, and I was, I was humbled by the kind of fecundity of the forest, mm. and how much people could could get to, to eat and harvest and grow um, in their in their yards. And these people didn't have a lot, but the but the joy, and I don't, I'm not trying to romanticize or glamorize this, but there's some very happy people there. <laughs> you yeah. know, which which, you know, if you've been involved and you use the urbanite sort of comfortable example, I think, you know, there is also that thing of working and living hand to mouth in a dense urban yeah. environment where yeah. you are constantly chasing your tail just to make ends meet and somewhere between those again these two polarities um there has to be some grist where we where we actually can explore what it means to be well and happy mm. um and and it comes back to this sort of you know the the, the perhaps some of the false aspiration that these engines of commerce still generate within us i mean i wrote a poem during lockdown called the markets recover um which was uh, which was essentially about you know when when the whole machine was gearing up to sell us stuff again going hey you're going to mm. get the economy back on track and just prepare yourself for you know a bombardment of advertising which is all tacitly supporting the nhs uh, and our heroic key workers, uh, uh. frontline people, because everyone wanted to ride on the virtuous bandwagon of their sacrifice. And it's just like, God. I mean, and some of it, again, it's well-intentioned, but, you know, after a while, it just becomes a bit nauseating. Yeah. Um, well-intentioned, but still potentially quite unethical. <laughs> yeah, well, and also, you know, I mean, uh, this is a discomfort point here, but, I mean, if anyone's read um Rutger Bregman's book uh, Utopia for Realists you know where he talks about the sort of social value of different mm. jobs uh, and again the pandemic has thrown into stark light the kind of vital 
role that you know people we used to call underskilled labor were yeah. now called key workers because they're yeah. the ones that keep the whole show on the road and he found yeah. them that the most pointless job was an advertising exec you know in terms of negative impacts on society and but highly remunerated yeah. uh and you know we should sit with some of that discomfort because we're very well paid for doing <laughs> creating a lot of a, a lot of problems um yeah and making it pretty we make it pretty and sound it pretty. good and convincing oh, exactly. yeah can you oh, copyright God. that for me please yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay sure <clears throat> later i'll be right on that okay i think it's time to ask you now what keeps you uncomfortable the edges of your comfort zone because i don't think you're afraid of plunging into discomfort so i'm very curious conscious or unconscious yeah. um i think it's not shying away from the difficult emotions um mm. you know there's a level of uh, grief i mean i touched upon it earlier but we're not good in the developed west uh and sort of waspish weird uh world of actually engaging with these really uncomfortable emotions yeah. um and what when you when you lose family members which many people have done obviously through the pandemic uh, and i i lost my dad and my brother um you don't get over grief you get through it uh and this is why i i think you have to get beyond that optimism we have to sort of delve mm. into some of the the darkness here because grief is a process which you navigate through what you love uh, you know you have to you know, grief reveals the love you have for things and if mm -hmm. we really love one another and if we really profess to love the natural world then it's impossible not to engage in that without without a sense of grief and i you know i refer to this in my talks as you know the notion of shifting baseline syndrome uh, whereby the level of beauty and diversity and fecundity of nature that we experience, which we think is normal, actually, and it's actually a sort of denuded fragment of what it could yeah. and should be. Uh, and the great example is like an old growth forest where, you know, that's evolved over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And one of my favourite books of last year, Tyson Junker Porter's Sand Talk, said, you know, we're at the start of a thousand year undertaking because mm -hmm. that's how long it will take for the old growth forest to come back. And you can't replace those. So when you realize and when you're cognizant of the extent of the loss, that's not doomerism. You know, that is actually confronting the reality of, of degradation. Yeah. That's like saying, what have we done when we look at the world and, and the places, particularly in the UK? And I had a very profound experience last summer during one of the, the breaks in lockdown. I visited an old growth forest in Suffolk, just up mm -hmm. the road from where I grew up called Staverton Thicks. And this is a forest of old oak trees, almost a thousand years old. Oh, wow. And I visited this place, you know, and I love forests. And I've visited, you know, hundreds of forests across the UK in my 48 years. And I walked into this place and I was like, oh my God, this is what it's supposed to be like. Was there a spirit to it? Was there a vibe? Oh my God, of course there was. Yeah, there was. I love trees. They have such soul. Yeah, and you know, and I, and I watched Fantastic Fungi, the movie the other night, which, you know, said every step of the ground you take in an old growth forest like that has 300 miles of fungal mycelium within it, every footstep. Wow. Now, when you when you see something like HS2, you know, the high speed two railway line, yeah. and they're going, oh, well, we've destroyed 120 old growth, you know, ancient woodlands, but we're going to create some more over here. You can't do it. <laughs> in a thousand years. In yeah. a thousand years, exactly. Oh, so for all intents and purposes of human experience, they're gone forever. Yeah. Um, and I think engaging with that grief is the wake-up call. Because mm. they've gone. And if we want to bring them back, we have to do things extremely differently. So I think, for me, the sources of discomfort are not shying away from those hard truths yeah. and, that, and, that, and that raw stuff, which I think some of the optimism stuff really does and and i, and I don't know i i've it, it's about the grief it's also about um i mean you you sort of talked about acceptance uh and the fact that there is an adaptability that allows us to embrace endurance as well mm. but but 
you know, there is a there is a reality to the world in which we find ourselves living as we are in this particular uh, generation at such a kind of critical turning point and tipping point for the world that I've, I think if unless you are able to sit with that discomfort, then you're going to be on the wrong journey. I remember it was, I don't even remember which US election it was, but I think I still lived in the US, so it must have been at least 20 years ago. And there was a bumper sticker that said, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not paying attention. Yeah. And it is, yeah, it's it's sort of not shying away from reality and understanding that there's some really hard things to face up to and being overwhelmed by that. And I saw that with Black Lives Matter and people that I know quite closely kind of getting stuck in the discomfort of having to realize they were white and that came with certain privileges. And then in, they just kind of got stuck there. Yeah. But I, I think maybe that's wave one. And I have optimism that some of them will pull through and realize that understanding your privilege doesn't necessarily, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means what are you going to no. do with it? How, and how do you deal with the grief of realizing that you have unconsciously helped propagate systems yeah. that have hurt people or you have enjoyed something that hurts the planet or we all have to grapple with that. Yeah. Exactly. And that's and that's the defense of the ego. You know, mm. that's to say, you know, that's where all lives matter comes from. You know, yeah, that's where, well, hey, I didn't cut down that tree or, you know, I'm not responsible yeah. for the Bangladeshi garmentry worker. Yeah. You know, that's that's the self-defense of the ego. And partly it's about dismantling some of that and going, we're, we're all complicit, as you say, you know, yeah. and it's the degree to what extent, you know, in the in the context of, you know, race relations is is how to be a good ally rather than just to be a a, a passive facilitator which is what yeah. often people end up doing which is where the white privilege manifests itself um so i i, I think oh god so god. many thoughts i know because i'm also a big advocate of don't attack your allies you know we just kind of eat each other for breakfast particularly if you're sort of progressive or an activist it's just like well yeah. i'm more right oh yeah standing, we're, when asked to form a firing squad we stand in a circle and shoot each other yeah. uh, you know i mean and it's also you know we we have to again if you look at brexit and trump you know 74 million americans voted for trump which makes him the biggest loser in history which is i think is quite Good funny <laughs> um, but, but at the same time you know there's a divisiveness there in the same way that there has been with brexit you know it's like you can't just you can't just appeal for unity or kind of browbeat the other side into saying hey we won you know you lost yeah. uh you guys got to go over yourselves and, and, you know, and not invade the capital or, uh, you know, not moan about this for the next 20 years. Somehow it's not about unity, but it's getting beyond uh, and trying to, to craft narratives. And this is where the, the school of myth stuff I've, I've found really interesting because, mm. you know, I also as a kind of communications professional i spent years saying we need a new story we just need a compelling new story you know a new story that brings us all together and makes us realize uh the situation and what we can do and to extricate ourselves the cult of positive messaging i think oh. we've kind of gotten over that but just like oh you have to positive messaging lands with people we can't be negative and i oh. think hopefully we've moved past that predominantly but it's well, still xr did a brilliant job of that yeah, yeah. I mean, extinction it's... rebellion it's... yeah they brought discomfort discomfort tell the truth and act like the truth is real i mean is one of the most powerful um positionings i think we've seen i think yeah. i've seen in my 20 years actually because yeah. it was just like don't shy away from this look at that grief look it in the eye you know don't look away hold the gaze um and look at how that who that brought out you have grandpas gluing themselves to trains in london yeah. people who would have never been activists and they're just yeah. like this discomfort has moved me Yes, exactly. And it's messy and uncomfortable, but it's real. Um, yeah. and, and again, you know, it's not about projected hopelessness. As I was saying before, it's not about projected hope. It's something in the middle uh, is where we have to sit. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, and that's where my guarded optimism comes from. I mean, you, you know, we're, we're still behaving like children. Our culture in the developed West is like a kind of toddler with a machine gun. Um, <laughs> you know, if you want a mental image for it. And I, I believe, you know, there is a certain circularity to human learning civilizationally that we have to heed some of the insights and lessons from people like Tyson Yunkaporter and Vanessa mm -hmm. Andriotti, because there's a way of being and it's not perfect 
but which is embedded in almost every long-term indigenous culture, uh, a way of interacting and, and harmonizing and aligning with the world, which is totally instructive. And as long as we continually embark on our reductive, economically focused, uh, you know, what we can justify type of approach, you know, when we're not going to be delivering the change required. You know, what if climate change was the physical reality uh, and it was the economy that was made up? I was just about to say, it, <laughs> it, I mean, the thing that's common about those cultures, and I think kind of woven into our discussion is that the laws of nature are the laws of nature. Yeah. Deep to stay in contact with the environment and with nature gives you a sense of reality that is inescapable. I'm from Wyoming. So like you, I grew up outdoors. I grew up in the wilderness, knowing that if a grizzly comes for you, you there's nothing you can do but cover your head and hope they don't kill you. So like that reality of nature is nature and you have to respect it. And these are laws that you can't be a toddler with a machine gun and live very long out there. You know, it's still going to get you. Nature can change instantly. You can slide down a glacier, or slide into a lake and get hypothermia. That was just my high school years being like, mom, dad, see you in a week. If I don't come back, call the sheriff. You know, like there was this regard for the laws of nature and how environment yeah. functions and our place in it as these tiny little pimples on the face of the earth that are insignificant. Well, if, if the wind changes or a bear yeah. comes along, you're gone. And I said before, you can't negotiate with climate change. You can't negotiate with the virus. I mean, you know, certainly the UK experience has been with uh, a prime minister who is one of the sunny, sunlit uplands type of false optimism um, propagators. Because time and again, that false optimism has led us into darker turmoil, another lockdown, you know, and the sort of brinksmanship of decision making where you shy away from making the tough choices until there's only one choice left on the table, which is lock everyone down again. It seems uh, to be his style of making decisions. It is. Wait till it's so stark, you only have one, two decisions to make and then it's easier. He can't handle complexity. But that optimism, seems. that false optimism was also yeah. instrumental in, in Brexit, you know, yeah. and it's, it's sellable, as you said. It's sellable. You can spin that line. But, you know, it's not based on truth. It's based on lies. It's based on emotive heartstrings, which are often, you know, found unwanting and unplucked when the, when the hard real politic actually hits the ground. And so yeah. this is what this is why I'm, you know, I'm a reformed. I call, I call myself a recovering sustainability consultant and a, refor <laughs> and a reformed optimist. I've started calling myself other things. I'm like, I'm a political communicator. I don't know what I am, but yeah, yeah. same. Storyteller. Same. But no, I mean, but going back to just what I was saying about the new story is like, you know, what I learned at the School of Myth was like, we don't need a new story. We need to listen to the oldest mm. stories and we need to embody the oldest stories because the wisdom in them is pre-Jungian archetypes. It's the timeless heritage of humanity, which is prevalent all over the planet in every culture. All of the things we need to know are there. And our curse is to constantly have to relearn them. So it's not about a new story. It's about living the old myths properly. What a beautiful way to put it. I was going to ask you, what do need to, people need to remember? What do people need to be consciously uncomfortable about? But I think you've just stated it perfectly as a master storyteller and without props, as I would expect. So I think, I think you're going to have to come back at some point in this season or next season, Ed. Yeah, that's, I've been on a couple of podcasts lately and people say, ugh. I think you're going to need to come back because yeah. we need to talk about. <laughs> this is meaty and rich and poetic, and you use the word fecundity, and you get that's a five dollar word in my book, Ed. That was that was beautiful. Right, is it we, book? We finish on a poem. Yes, please. I'll, I'll fin right. I'll, let's finish on the markets recover because I mentioned it. Go um, it. So this was written in the thick of lockdown, just when people were starting to talk about you know returns to normal. Believe your eyes, believe your ears, believe in the tracks of your hot salt tears. They're coming to play on your hopes and fears the way they've been doing for 50 years. You're not enough. You're a bit too fat. You're a better person for feeding your cat a top-end brand of fish in a tin with a deathless ocean contained within. Buy our stuff and you too will belong. Come sing along to our catchy song. We're targeting you because our data said so. It's funny because you'll never know why you're actually buying this shit. The subliminal urge, then point and click. Believe your eyes, believe your ears, believe in the tracks of your hot salt tears. Our nature is singing for hope, not fear, the way she's been doing for billions of years. 
Ah, oh, thank you so much, Ed. As always, it is a gift and a pleasure to talk to you. I know people will will delight in and savor what you said. So thank you again for your time and your wisdom and your insight and your Eunice, your <laughs> insultancy, <laughs> whatever it is you are now, because you've it's not insultancy anymore. And okay, I thought I'm we would a, talk for Yeah, you're a human being who has some some outrage and some wisdom and some learnings from things that you've done in the past. And, but I appreciate your ability yeah. to be with discomfort and your willingness yeah, my, to share about it. My old colleague in my, in my disastrous uh, departure from my old agency, he just said, I said, what do I do Warren? And he, and he went, just stay human, Ed. Stay human. Thank you again. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Svedkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at thebetsyreed, that's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable. <laughs>